Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Not everyone who managed to change the world is famous. It is possible to do something absolutely monumentally world-shaking and not receive any recognition whatsoever. In fact, I'll give you a name. Vasily Arkhipov. It's possible that this guy is the only reason any of us are still alive. Seriously. October 27th, 1962. It's the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviets had nukes in Cuba aimed at the U.S., and more were on the way. John Kennedy responded by setting up a blockade around the island. The USS Randolph was one of the ships in charge of enforcing the blockade. They spotted a Soviet sub that was sent to protect the flotilla of Russian ships approaching the island with more missiles on board. This one particular sub, a Foxtrot Class B-59, was armed with nukes and Arkhipov was the second in command on that sub. The Randolph began dropping depth charges in an effort to get the sub to surface. B-59 suffered damage. The crew couldn't breathe. They wanted to fight back. The sub commander tried to raise Soviet command for permission to fire, but he couldn't reach them. Because they'd been cruising submerged for days, they hadn't heard anything from the Soviet high command. But they had been monitoring American civil broadcasts, which offered nonstop coverage of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and now they were under attack. Maybe the war had finally begun. If that was the case, shouldn't they be good communists and launch their missiles? Captain Valentin Savitsky was in favor of an attack. So was political officer Ivan Melisenkov. But in order to launch the nukes, Savitsky and Melisenkov also needed agreement from Arkhipov. What do you say, Vasily? Do we engage the Americans with our special weapon? Vasily took a deep breath and replied, Yet, we do not fire. We have no proof that we are at war. What if we're wrong? If we launch, we risk starting an all-out nuclear war and wiping out all life on planet Earth. The commander wasn't happy with that, but... Rules were rules, and he ordered that the crew stand down. No nuke would be fired that day. And when the sub did surface, it was confirmed that hostilities had not broken out. And this is why Vasily Arkhipov is widely regarded as the man who single-handedly prevented a global nuclear war on October 27, 1962. Yet, how many people know his name? Now let's take a big pivot into music. What kind of unsung heroes might we find there? 
This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this program features a list of names from music history that you've probably never heard before, yet these people made a tremendous difference in our music. Okay, so they didn't steer us away from nuclear war, but trust me, without them, today's music would be very, very different. Our first unsung hero is Jack Mullen. Yeah, I know. Who? Uh, But without him, well, you'll see. But first, uh, we need some hero music. Let's get some from David Bowie. Jack Mullen was a major in the U.S. Army Signal Corps during World War II. At the end of the war, he stumbled upon a couple of strange Nazi machines. They were reel-to-reel tape recorders used in radio broadcasts to confuse the Allies as to Hitler's whereabouts. How could he be in Berlin, Munich, and Hamburg making different hours-long speeches at the same time? Well, the answer was he was on tape, a technology that the Nazis had perfected. Here's Mullen talking about what he found. Uh, There was a man there from the British Army at the same time, and we walked around together, and uh, somehow the subject of... uh, records and music and recording came up and he asked me if I had heard this machine down at Radio Frankfurt and I just said is it a tape machine and he said yes and I said what is it one of those magnetophones and he said yes that's right and I said oh sure fine I discounted what his raving about it because up to that time all our experience had been with a low fidelity job and I thought well he just didn't have very good ears but he said we ought to go and listen to it and coming down that road afterward, there was at the bottom of the hill, there's a turnoff. You turn to the right and it would take you west when ultimately back to Paris. And if you turned left, you were on your road to Frankfurt or actually Bad Nauheim, which is the town where the um, broadcast service was uh, coming from then because they had been, they had to get out of Frankfurt because of the bombing. And um, so that was probably the greatest decision I ever made in my life was to turn left there and follow the guy's advice instead of just discounting what he said and turning right and probably never would have <laughs> could have changed my entire life and I look back on it. So I turned left and we went to the radio station that afternoon and uh, it was being operated by the um, Americans, the AFRS. And so I asked them if they could uh, let me hear one of these machines and so they spoke in German to an assistant who clicked his heels and ran back to a room and came out with a roll of tape and put it on the machine. And that's when I really flipped because I'd never heard anything like that. No, as far as to my knowledge, uh, there just hadn't been anything like that anywhere in recording before. You couldn't tell whether it was live or playback. There was no background noise. I was thrilled. Because the war invalidated all Nazi patents, Mullen was able to take the machines home where, after getting out of the army, he started demonstrating this high-fidelity technology that was unknown in the West for potential investors. One investor was Bing Crosby. Yeah, him. He hated having to repeat his national radio show for the West Coast time zone. He really wanted to be out golfing. And this was a solution. He could just pre-tape his East Coast broadcast and then call it a day. So Bing became an investor in Ampex, an electronic firm, that had been making reel-to-reel machines based on Mullen's German booty. So many innovations followed. 
Performances could be started, stopped, restarted, and then edited together with a razor blade and some tape. Mistakes could be removed, just excised. If a joke bombed, well, then it could be literally cut out. And there was even more. An early production unit was given to guitarist Les Paul, who modified the machines to allow for multi-track recording. Overdubs were now possible. Entire parts of a recording could be redone without having to redo all the other parts. Special effects like reverb and echo could be added after the fact. And the volume of each track, of each microphone going to the tape, could be controlled separately. Now, none of this had been possible before because performances needed to be recorded directly to an acetate or to a transcription disc. This meant no edits, no fixing it in the mix. If one person during the take made a mistake, you had to start all over again. In short, Major Jack Moen, along with his early believer Bing Crosby and guitarist Les Paul, gave birth to modern recording studio techniques. From the 1950s forward, it became possible to make records that were impossible to reproduce in the real world. The studio became a musical instrument itself with unlimited sonic possibilities. And not only that, this same technology made videotape possible, and that completely transformed television and later home entertainment. So, uh, yeah, yay to Major Jack and his recording tape. Here's a song from XTC about that reel-to-reel tape. Kind of, sort of. It's close anyway. Our second unsung hero in the history of rock is a character named Moondog. There's a chance that without him, we wouldn't be referring to a certain type of music as rock and roll. Story goes like this. Back in the 1950s, Alan Freed was a disc jockey in Cleveland playing black R&B records for white kids. Really radical thing to do at the time. On the air, he referred to himself as the Moondog and threw these concerts called Moondog Balls, which were insanely successful. This reached the ears of Lewis Harden Jr., a homeless, six-foot blind New York street performer who dressed up in a Viking costume and could often be found outside the stage door of Carnegie Hall, standing silently and banging a drum. He also composed music and made a few records under the name Moondog. Naturally, Moondog was impossible to miss, and he started attracting attention, including from famous composers and conductors who went to Carnegie Hall. Eventually, he raised enough money to record a piece called Moondog Symphony in 1949, where he performed everything himself. That record, Moondog's Symphony, found its way to Alan Freed in Cleveland, and it became the theme for his radio show. In addition, he began calling himself Moondog. Now, the actual Moondog was, as you might guess, incensed. So with the help of big band leader Benny Goodman, he sued Alan Freed, and he won $6,000 in damages. But more importantly, he secured a promise that Freed would never use the word Moondog again. This was a problem because... Freed had to revamp his image. He needed a new catchphrase. And that's when he decided to use an African-American slang phrase for sex. Now, the kids would knew what he meant. Well, the parents wouldn't have a clue. 
And that's how rock and roll came to be used to describe this new sort of music in the 1950s. Meanwhile, Moondog was taken very seriously as a performer and composer, even managing to secure a recording contract under which he released a number of albums. He got married, started a family, and returned to Carnegie Hall in 1989 to conduct a performance of his own works. Moondog eventually found his way to Europe, where he died of heart failure in 1999 at the age of 83. His entire life experience was inspirational to everyone, from itinerant hippies to bands like this, who cite Moondog as very important to the creation of trip-hop. So there are our first two unsung heroes, Major Jack Mullen of the U.S. Army Signal Corps and the blind New York street musician known as Moondog. In just a moment, we'll hear about the guy who accidentally turned the electric guitar's tones away from nice clean sounds into something much more raunchy and powerful. This is a program on the unsung heroes of rock. You may have never heard of these people before, but without them, our music would be very, very, very different. Let's talk about Grady Martin. Grady was a session guitarist in Nashville who played on hundreds of recordings for people like Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and even Buddy Holly. All right, so what does he have to do with rock and roll? As it turns out, a lot. Let's go back to 1961. At this time, the purpose of the electric guitar was to provide clean, clear sounds like an acoustic. You wanted the same tones as an acoustic guitar, just louder so you could be heard over all the other instruments while not having to rely on a microphone. There were a few performers who realized that by deliberately overdriving the amplifier or actually causing physical damage to the speaker, you could distort the guitar sound into something growly and powerful. But it was impossible to control those sounds, especially if you were indiscriminately punching holes through speaker cones with a screwdriver or a pencil or something. Other sounds were found through happy accidents that could be impossible to duplicate. In late 1960, Grady was called in to play guitar on a Marty Robbins song called Don't Worry at the Quonset Hut Studio in Nashville. Everything was proceeding normally until Grady plugged in his six-string baritone guitar directly into the recording console. What came out did not sound right. A faulty transformer for one of the preamps inside the console halfway failed, making everything sound all fuzzy. Turns out that the manufacturer of the console was in the process of moving operations from New York to California, and he had used some faulty transistors and transformers in this particular mixing desk. Marty Robbins hated this sound. He thought it was just vulgar. But Grady thought it sounded cool. So did producer Owen Bradley. And so did studio engineer Glenn Snoddy. And in the end, Robbins was overruled. And that part was left in the song. Here's the part of the song we need to pay attention to. And, and don't worry, you'll hear it. Don't worry about me. Even after they tracked down that bad transformer, they didn't do anything about it. In fact, they hoped that whatever the console was doing, it would keep doing it. And then, in the spring of 1961... Don't Worry became a big hit for Marty Robbins, and everybody wanted to know, how did you get that sound? That included Grady Martin himself, who recorded a song called The Fuzz.
Gibson Guitars heard the sound and called Ready Up. You got something there, they said. Is there any way you could help us build something that would make this sound available to anyone on demand? So, with some help from Snotty and an engineer from Nashville's WSM-TV named Revis Hobbs, Grady designed a circuit that would do just that. When the prototype was ready, Grady and Glenn Snotty took the contraption, which had taken on the form of a foot pedal, to Gibson's offices in Chicago. They took one listen and said, This is brilliant. We'll take it. And so began the manufacture of the first ever fuzz pedal for the guitar, the first ever distortion pedal, the Maestro Fuzz Tone. This is from a demonstration record released in 1962. A built-in foot pedal switch attaches to your amplifier with a handy jack. Makes possible all these effects with the touch of a toe. Use it as often as you wish. It will not interfere with your regular guitar or bass when turned off has a volume control and an attack control. Completely transistorized, the Maestro Fuzz Tone has its own self-contained power supply. Now, let's listen to some of the unbelievable effects that you can create with the Fuzz Tone. First, let's use an electric bass. This is a sousaphone effect. Wasn't that something? Now we'll use the electric bass again for this, a tuba sound. There's more, but you get the idea. These sounds caught on. Other manufacturers started coming out with their own pedals. There was the tone bender, the fuzz face, the big muff. Stop giggling but it was the Maestro FZ-1 fuzz tone that created this sound. After Satisfaction was a hit for the Stones, everybody wanted a Maestro fuzz tone, but Keith Richards almost didn't use that bit. When Satisfaction was being written and recorded, he heard that riff being played by a horn section, and he set the pedal to sound like maybe a saxophone or something close to it. The two times the Stones recorded this song, Keith's guitar was just supposed to be a placeholder for this horn section. But the rest of the band loved the guitar sound. Keith hated it. He was a, a blues guy. He wanted a horn section. But he was overruled, and four weeks after the final session at RCA Studios in Hollywood on May 12, 1965, Satisfaction was released, and the distorted guitar was forever front and center in rock music. And it all began with that weird equipment failure in Nashville in late 1960. When Kurt Cobain recorded this song, he ran a Japanese-made Fender Telecaster through a Marshall amplifier with an important detour through an electroharmonics big muff.
Nirvana making great use of distortion pedal technology invented by accident by Grady Martin 30 years before that recording session. We can now segue smoothly into another unsung hero who had a lot to do with guitar effects pedals, except that he didn't invent them. He sold them. Unless you shop for music gear in New York City way back in the day, you'll never have heard of Henry Goldrich. But this guy needs to be credited with having a major impact on rock music. Henry inherited a music store from his father, a saxophone player turned music retailer. Manny's Music on West 58th between 6th and 7th Avenues was the place everyone in New York City went for their gear, starting in 1935. Manny, and then son Henry, made sure the place was stocked with the greatest musical instruments and accessories possible. Didn't matter if you were a beginner or a seasoned pro, Manny's Music was your place. Now, this was great for the locals, but whenever touring musicians came through New York, they also had to visit because they heard about this place. Customers included the Beatles and Pete Townsend and Bob Dylan and literally thousands more. If you remember Guns N' Roses' Paradise City video, there were shots of Manny's. David Gilmour's famous Black Strat, the legendary guitar used on so many iconic Pink Floyd recordings, was purchased at Manny's in 1969. You can't have that many famous and soon-to-be-famous people coming through your store without having an effect on music. And this is what happened. In the middle 60s, Henry brought in a new guitar gizmo called a wah-wah pedal. He then convinced two customers to buy one. One was an up-and-coming guitarist named Jimi Hendrix, and then there was Eric Clapton, a hot new player from the UK. They each thought, okay, this thing sounds cool. Give me one. The pedal not only changed how these guys played, but the whole direction of guitar-based rock and roll. Here's Jimmy playing through such a pedal that he got at Manny's. Once you understand that sound, you can hear wah-wahs being used in a million different songs. Kirk Hammett uses it all the way through Metallica's Enter Sandman. You'll hear it on many of Bob Marley's songs. It's all through Pink Floyd's material, courtesy of David Gilmour. And here's a fantastic example from Tom Morello in Rage Against the Machine with Bulls on Parade. Tom Morello with his wah-wah pedal in full treble position for the riffs throughout Bulls on Parade. One more mention here of Manny's Music. This was the store that Douglas Colvin and John Cummings visited in 1973 after spending the afternoon getting baked on weed. When they were high, they decided that they absolutely needed to form a band. So they went down to Manny's and bought a guitar, a bass, and a small amp. A year later, Douglas was calling himself Dee Dee, and Johnny was Johnny, and together... With Joey and Tommy, they formed the Ramones. The Ramones, another band made possible by Henry Goldrich, the proprietor of Manny's Music in New York. Both Henry and the store are gone. The place went out of business in 2009, and Henry died at the age of 88 in early 2021. We have time for two more unsung heroes of music, and these guys come as a pair. Hang on. This is part one of a two-parter on unsung heroes of music. Chances are you've never heard of any of these people, but without them, rock music could have turned out to sound, well, different. We can honestly say that these people influenced in how music was made and recorded. 
All right. What about Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margaleff? A blank stares. I, I get that. These guys, a British jazz dude working for the BBC and an American record producer, were huge influences on the world of electronic music, but they were almost entirely behind the scenes. In the late 1960s, Malcolm and Cecil were fascinated by new machines being made by Bob Moog, the synthesizer inventor. They set out to construct the world's biggest modular synth setup. God, this thing was huge. It featured gear from Moog, Oberheim, ARP, EMS, Roland, and Yamaha. There were keyboards and patch bays and joysticks and a bunch of custom-made analog synth modules. And if you know how things worked, you could make sounds never, ever, ever heard before. And you could run a drum track, a bass line, and multiple melodies at the same time. That was brand new, too. They called their monstrosity Tonto, which was short for the original new timbral orchestra. It was installed in a series of wooden cabinets arranged in a semicircle 25 feet in diameter and six feet tall. All told, it weighed about one ton. Hey, have you ever seen the movie Phantom of the Paradise? You know the studio in which poor Winslow Leach slaves away on his cantata? That's what we see in the background. That is the actual Tonto. Malcolm and Cecil started releasing their own material, and their first album was called Zero Time. Let's get a taste of that. Stevie Wonder heard Tonto and called up Malcolm and Cecil. Stevie was out of his old contract with Motown Records and wanted a tutorial in synthesizers so he could finally start recording the music that he heard in his head. Malcolm, Cecil, and their Tonto setup worked with Stevie on three albums that make up much of the core of Stevie Wonder's greatest period. It was Talking Book, Inner Visions, and Fulfilling This First Finale. Very, very important records from the 1970s, all which came out over the span of just three and a half years. It's like Superstition, Living for the City, Boogie on Reggae Woman, Higher Ground, and many others were all composed and recorded using Tonto. From that point on, Malcolm and Cecil were always getting work. If you wanted to work with the best synth in the middle 70s, then you went to Malcolm and Cecil and they brought over Tonto. After a while, though, Tonto's size was a problem, especially with smaller, cheaper, and more powerful synths coming out every day. It was shuffled from studio to studio to studio, and gradually became unwanted and unloved. And for a while, it was in Los Angeles at the studio of Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo. But then it went up for sale in 2013. It was purchased and then restored by the National Music Center in Calgary. And it's now a major, major part of the center's keyboard collection. Tonto changed the direction of Stevie Wonder's career. Then he changed what black pop music could be. Quincy Jones loved this thing. What he learned shaped how he produced Michael Jackson's albums, and it brought all kinds of new attention to the possibilities of electronically generated music. Tonto influenced the shape of rock music and the use of the recording studio, and Tonto was a big reason synthesizer manufacturers worked so hard to advance the technology in the 1970s, creating these smaller, faster, cheaper electronic keyboards. And those new machines led to lots and lots and lots of new music including all the techno-pop that we got in the wake of punk. Like this. It's getting hotter, it's a burning love And I just can't seem to get it enough 
On the second part of this program on unsung heroes of music, we're going to expand the palette just a little bit to include someone with an interesting taste in hairstyles. There will be a drummer who should have made a billion dollars and the woman who may have invented punk. Meanwhile, feel free to check out all the ongoing history podcasts that we have available through the usual platforms. Just download and go. You and I can meet up through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There's my website, a journal of musical which is updated every day. Get the free daily newsletter. I mean, why not? It's free. And if you have any questions or comments, drop me a line through Alan at alancross.ca. Part two of the unsung heroes of music next time. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 